before beginning this episode, I just wanted to thank those of you who have been following the podcast and for those of you who have donated. It means a lot. This is the last episode of 2022. Season 2 will begin in 2023, and hopefully I'll have more on the way of a diversity of guests and subjects. To let you know in advance, the audio file is somewhat corrupted on this episode, so some aspects are going to be disjointed. Philip elaborates his thesis for about 15 minutes. At the 16-minute mark, I start giving my thoughts on his work, and for about a minute, my voice echoes. So if you just bear through that, the audio file will resume. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended, either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large, or in the common ruin of the contending classes. The emancipation of the German is the emancipation of man. The head of this emancipation is philosophy, its heart the proletariat. Philosophy cannot realize itself without the transcendence of the proletariat, and the proletariat cannot transcend itself without the realization of philosophy. Karl Marx, a contribution to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right. Common Ruin, Episode 5 Reconciling Idealism and Materialism Philip S. joins Michael Acuna to discuss Iris Murdoch's contributions to Neoplatonic thought, as well as Philip's own writings on materialist and idealist philosophy. When you and I had initially got into touch about what we wanted to discuss, it seemed like we were trying to look at the intersection of idealism and materialism and see if there is a way to bridge the two. Why don't you explain your interest in that specifically, in that project, and and how you've come to approach it? When I first started studying philosophy in college, I was sort of more, more out of feelings or, or maybe biases adhering to idealism because it's the, it's the first kind of philosophy I encountered and it really spoke to me. So, so it was my anchor in everything. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I found Marxism really compelling. And I always maintain that there is a way to hold those in parallel, you know, to on the one hand, in, in some things be a materialist and in some things be an idealist. But that's, of course, a vulgarization of what I came to learn. I think that one of the eye-opening moments was actually when I read, not only when I read, but when I really uh, understood the thesis of Marx's 11th thesis on Feuerbach. And so my thesis is that what bridges idealism and materialism is the human praxis. 
and I developed this idea in my essays, although not explicitly because because the uh, the assignments were on alienation and freedom or alienation and technology or what, whatever it was, but but we were given free range to write whatever we want, so I kind of use it as a platform to explore my own understanding, uh, to give my own answers to the um, assigned questions. And so I think that the conclusions that I came to were that the that there remains a problem of abstraction that philosophy hasn't yet really reconciled. And there have been attempts, the most sophisticated but also kind of the most misleading, I think, was Hegelianism, and a little bit less sophisticated but still important and extremely relevant uh, Kantianism. And I think that their mistake when they was that they tried to turn idealism into a coherent systematic science. Specifically, the kind of science, because we know science in the ancient Greece world meant uh, something else, but they tried to turn philosophy and the tradition of pre-Socratics and the uh, Plato, Aristotle, the Christians, uh, Descartes, they tried to make it as firm and as fertile for results as was the 17th and 18th century natural science. Uh, in fact, natural science was called natural philosophy. In fact, and I think that was where they made a mistake, uh, because you can't approach Platonism as purely scientific endeavor. And what I think is a step towards reconciliation between the problem of abstraction and the, let's say, the importance of idealistic legacy in philosophy, is that Marx and Engels realized that the focus of human attention should be praxis. So the way we function uh, and orient ourselves in the world. And so when he, uh, when Marx criticizes abstract, abstract philosophy in his uh, German ideology, in Thyssen um, Feuerbach, and in, I think it's called, uh, I don't know what the English uh, title is, but uh, basically Marx's, Marx's criticism of Hegel. So those those three works, I think they were they were eye opening to me because I saw what were the limitations of the Enlightenment uh, idealism. So Kant, Hegel, Fichte, Schelling, Schelling was kind of uh, uninvolved in that whole scientific uh, experiment, but he came to reject it altogether at the yes, end. Of yes, yes. Yeah. But uh, regardless, he still was one of the main currents in the classical German idealism. So. The main problem that I identified is when you try to turn idealism into science, you are creating a gulf between yourself and uh, the world that you are analyzing. And of course, I'm, this, isn't, this isn't my genius thesis. It was postulated as a problem by Kant and Hegel. But the way that they saw solution was, for, uh, for Kant, it was a return to careful scientific skepticism in maintaining the fact that we cannot know being uh, uh, we can only study the way it manifests towards us. And on the other hand, Hegel's attempt at solution was that through historical processes, we will reach a point where philosophy will become as comprehensive and as sure of itself as is science. Uh, basically, that we will be sure in the results of philosophical inquiries as we are sure in the results of scientific inquiries. 
right? So my thesis is that's a mistake, and the problem of abstraction remains. And so how do we how do we resolve it? Well, we should postulate that praxis is not just one of the irrational components of a world machine. Some Marxists fall into mistake of uh, viewing it like that. I, I cite Milan Kangerga, who is a Croatian praxis philosopher. For those who don't know, praxis philosophy was Yugoslav attempts to synthesize Marx and Heideggerian influences. Not just Heidegger, but he was very much an important add-on to Marxism-Leninism. Uh, and so Kangerga maintains that the mistake of some Marxists, and he cites uh, Engels even as making this mistake, is that in order to be scientifically accurate, we have to create a gulf between the subjects, which is ourselves as the ones who are studying the world, and uh, the world itself, the, the object. For Hegel, subject and object will be synthesized in some sort of eschatological development of philosophy, which is parallel to the development of history itself. For uh, Marx, and this is the genius of Marx's criticism of Hegel, the subject and object are brought in unity through practice. I think it's the third thesis. One of the thesis states, man has to prove the disworldliness of his ideas. So in a sense, if you have an idea, it cannot, it cannot remain in this abstract space. It, it has to manifest itself. So I think this is a step towards reconciliation of this uh, gulf between subject and object. Uh, however, I think that Marx sort of gives up early and leaves a legacy of praxis being just one of the abstract concepts. Balibar, uh, I think, is a good example of how Marxism actually became this alienated science with no bearing on human destiny or uh, values or orientations in the world. And so my attempt at giving sense to all this is to bring ethics into this. So if we say that we are practical beings, that we are beings that occupy this space uh, with goals, with uh, dangers, with values, with wishes, with destinies, that every act, every act of practice is actually ethical. Otherwise, it's all uh, arbitrary. So, and we can see this in epistemology, uh, which is something that I go into in my essay. So, if you maintain that you can, uh, the world is knowable. And if you're a Marxist, you should maintain that the world is knowable. In fact, if you adhere to any kind of science, you must believe in mundus intelligibilis, the intelligible world, which is goes all the way back to Plato, but also pre-Socratics, uh, Heraclitus, and so on. Uh, all right, so in placing ethics in epistemology, we can see that the epistemological rules that construct the foundations of any kind of knowledge they are in their nature ethical uh, because they serve some sort of a normative role in our orientation in the world. And so we cannot separate scientific endeavor as a separate category from any kind of endeavor. Now, of course, practically we should. You cannot really practice science the way you practice music or um, the way you maintain your relationships with other people. But my thesis is that the subject is integrated into the world of objects uh, in a way that he that he's positioned in some sort of a space where the objects are manifesting themselves gradually. So if you are, I talk about freedom, how freedom is one of the objects that is 
constantly talked about in philosophy, but nobody really can give a coherent definition. And I don't think that giving a coherent definition is necessarily fruitful endeavor, because it again postulates that you know there is this thing outside of me that's called freedom, and then I can define it, and then I can like understand it and control it. So that's creating this gulf between the subject and the object. Rather, the object exists as a series of gradual manifestations in lower or in higher degree, right? And so if we are, so uh, our understanding depends on this, on, on our position in this. It's not exactly hierarchy, but it's certainly sort of a ladder between lower comprehension of the object and, and the higher. And so understanding, knowledge, is inherently an ethical act. And ethics itself is a viewpoint that can be applied to every philosophical discipline. So I, in the essay, I discuss how it applies to epistemology. I discuss how it applies to ontology. And this is where we get to affirming platonic idealism. So we are practical beings, right? But our praxis, uh, like our understanding, is either determined by some sort of normative urgrund, or, is, or if not, it's totally arbitrary. And if it's arbitrary, then there's no even sense in talking about it. So, so the very fact that we can talk about it implies that there is this normativity. So I say this normativity is ethical, and the only way it can function if, is if there is a middle ground between us and the perfect object we are talking about. This is the platonic ideal. So it's not only that the object is abstract in a sense that uh, we cannot find it in the woods or uh, in the, uh, on the table or in, in the sea, you know, it's not material, uh, but also it's the best version of, of the thing that exists. You know, like we talk about the object of freedom. The ideal freedom, ideal freedom is the best kind of freedom that, that exists. And so the way that we come to understanding this ideal freedom is to move to this ladder of degrees in which the object manifests. And in this, we also affirm the platonic form of the good, the, the, the ideal of the good, because it's the thing that not only is one of the objects, but it, it is the object that enables any other kind of comprehension of objects. So it's like the sun, you know, in the Republic, you have the allegory of the sun, where you can only see you can see the sun, of course, although you shouldn't look at it for <laughs> long. But any other thing that you can see, you can see only because of the light that the sun gives you. So that's the the role that form of the good plays in this ascension or, or descension on the ladder of manifestations between non-being and the perfect being, the, the ideal. And you are positioned and you are positioned somewhere in between somewhere in between and the middle ground, the metaxia that Plato talks about is what conditions you to a specific type of understanding. If you're on a higher level and the manifestation of the object comes to you on a, in a higher degree, then you will see how it applies to everything that is lower. So freedom applies to, first of all, being free from tyrants, you know, not being a slave. But it also can mean that you should be free from addictions. So, so there are a lot of spheres that we tend to think that they're not related. No, the, if you're a drug addict, uh, you, might, you might think that uh, freedom has nothing to do with your condition or, or maybe even freedom brought you here because you had the freedom to try drugs. Uh, but in fact, 
you have to have a higher understanding of freedom to realize that freedom actually applies to you in your situation. You know, you must be free from this addiction. And so that's just one of the examples of the way that we approach the ideals. So bringing it back to materialism, this whole thing, this whole discussion uh, that started in my head, you know, and that brought me here, started with the problem of, uh, you know, are, the, are these ideals really just abstractions? Because you said that uh, you necessarily come to abstract objects. And, of course, when, you, when we talk about Plato, we necessarily talk about abstractions. But I, don't, but I also think that the word abstraction doesn't quite describe what are we talking about exactly. Because abstraction is more of a, what the scientists talk about. So it's pure ontology. So it's understanding of things that are totally separate from us. And platonic ideals are not separate from us, though we sort of partake in them, but to a lower or higher degree. And we must have the epistemological humility uh, and affirm that we can never really ascend, not just to ideal itself, but also to, like, we are so low, and only few people, maybe like mystics or, or um, wise men, saints, or whatever you want to call them, really got close enough, you know. But still, uh, I think that Iris Murdoch perfectly explains how applying this theory to your life can actually help you prosper, you know. And which brings us again to virtue ethics, because all other ethics don't affirm the importance of ascension, don't really affirm the importance of the idea that through ethics you are actually connected to, to a grander world. I, I think that Kant, for all his... Kant is a brilliant ontologist, I think, and metaphysician, but... His ethical theory, I think that it really brought down the Western philosophical tradition down. Like, I think his ethical theory is just terrible. And fortunately, we have Aristotelian revival in the last 50 or more years with uh, Anscombe and uh, Foot and uh, McIntyre, of course. So I think that new horizons are opening up. Okay, so I've been going on for a while. Those are that's the kind that's kind of the my understanding to to frame this discussion. Right. So right. now I want to hear from you. Uh, what do you think about my arguments, and uh, how would you approach this issue? What are what are your um, initial premises? Okay, so I see where you're following Murdoch in your hypothesis regarding how there you can't really occupy neutrality, like partaking in certain endeavor is an inherently ethical program. The way she frames it is that she, so she makes at the beginning of her essay a couple of assumptions. So one of her assumptions is that human beings are selfish. And her second assumption is that human life has no external telos. So those are her two starting axioms. From that, she arrives at the conclusion that moral philosophy cannot avoid taking sides. There's no neutrality. The second you engage in philosophizing in that sense, you're already assuming positions. And she begins with the uh, analogy of prayer, for instance, and how prayer for the believer enables the believer to have energy to transcend themselves so they they're able to escape that innate selfishness that she's positing that human beings possess similarly 
when you engage in intellectual discourse or observing beauty, anything that's outside yourself, anything transcending yourself is virtuous, according to Murdoch. Um, it can't help but be because it's, again, allowing you to transcend yourself in that way, which I thought was clever, but I don't know that her axioms are accurate. I don't know that human beings are innately that selfish. I think that I don't want to be too much of an empiricist here, but if you look at anthropology and if you look at sophisticated models of human evolution, I think that what she'll find as opposed to this notion of innate egoism is what you, you find a high degree of altruism in our species. I think Aristotle was right that we're an innately social animal. So if we start puncturing her starting axioms, that can be a problem for the whole thesis, right? I don't know that it's devastating. I think that there is a point to be made regarding um, transcending the self, because even if we're not innately as selfish as she's claiming, we certainly are historically at this moment, and um, and we have been in various other periods. So there's something to be said for transcending the self, even if it isn't as extreme as her position would suggest at the outset. Regarding her abandonment of teleology, as an Aristotelian, I found that somewhat problematic. And as a Christian, I found that problematic because it's at odds with eschatological conceptions that I affirm. But be that as it may, if I'm just going to suspend my own axiomatical objections, I think her argument stands pretty well on its own terms. I guess when we return to the question of freedom that you have, that your essays had tackled more directly than Murdoch's, I think you're right that there, there's a certain sense, especially if we're going to approach it from a position of platonic idealism where those kinds of high-level conceptions are never going to lend themselves to the degree of scientific precision that an analytic philosopher or even a German idealist, somebody working in that tradition, would accept. But I think that the platonic insistence upon an epistemic humility is very important because when we're dealing with ontological and metaphysical concepts, you can never have the degree of epistemic certitude that these paradigms demand. Um, but I think that that's an unreasonable standard. I don't think that when we're dealing with moral philosophy on this level, that we don't have the luxury of those kinds of modes of analysis. We have to accept a degree of opacity, as it were. But with the subject of freedom in particular, I think that you can define it in such a way that you can arrive at a comprehensible notion. I think that one way of thinking about freedom is to understand the dichotomy that you had presented, for instance, which is freedom as liberty, which is basically just an absence of coercion or an absence of authority, right? And then there's a Socratic notion of freedom that has to do with autonomy or control over yourself, being free of your ignoble desires, the bronze elements of your nature, having properly ordered thinking, being in control of your appetites. That is a, another notion of freedom. And it's the, the notion of freedom that I affirm. And I think that you can look at political philosophy through that lens alone. I think that, for instance, some of the 
postmodern tradition, to the extent they had a political philosophy, conceived of freedom as freedom as liberty or as freedom for the libido in another sense. Anarchists, people such as that. And then if you look at freedom as autonomy or as self-control, that leads you in more of a communitarian direction. You start seeing that in McIntyre, for instance. You see it in certain kinds of communism. You see it in certain kinds of socialism. And I think that that's a more fruitful way of approaching freedom. But nevertheless, if we're looking at it from a position of moral philosophy, there is still that opacity that you're drawing attention to. And it's hard to know where to delineate the two, because obviously both conceptions are important. Like they both have their place in practical politics. And trying to get to the meta ethics of that is very difficult. Positing platonic forms is helpful. But again, you do have to accept that. I don't want to say alienation, because as you said, we're if we affirm the notion of the forms, we're participating in them, but we don't have direct access to the forms. And part uh, of... This is why I didn't want to use uh, the image of a hierarchy, because mm-hmm. hierarchy sort of implies a separation between uh, stages, right? Or between the um, classes, like separate parts of the pyramid, you know? It's more like um, what is at the top actually fills the entire thing, like I don't know really how to explain it, but uh, what image to use, but uh, it's like, uh, maybe like a river is clearer at its source, mm-hmm. so maybe uh, the closer you are to the source, then the river becomes different, but it's still the same thing, like it's still the same. Right, answer. there's right. continuity between it, that, that's a better metaphor for sure. I noticed that Murdoch was more comfortable using the language of hierarchy in her paper. But be that as it may, going back to Marxism and its origins in German idealism, the philosopher, you know that part of the problem here when we're talking about idealism and materialism is that they're really theoretical postulates that cannot, they don't lend themselves to verification. They just can't in principle. So the way that the tradition has historically approached it is simply affirming one position or the other and then following through with that. So Marx was an Epicurean atomist and so was Engels, but they never really needed to justify that position and they couldn't justify that position. It's just something that they, it's a starting axiom for them. Everything else follows. Now, where the idealist has an advantage when you're dealing with with an atomist like that is by interjecting the notion of free will. Because if you're going to really argue that position consistently, it's going to lend itself to determinism ultimately. And I think, I don't remember what paper I read this on, but if I recall correctly, one of the distinctions that they were trying to draw between Marx and Engels, for instance, is that if you read dialectics of nature, for instance, Engels is really leading in a more deterministic direction. So he's starting with the position of all reality is matter in motion. And from that, he's concluding in political philosophy in such a way that it is somewhat more deterministic than what you see in Marx. So Marx never really wrote on those kinds of questions directly. It just wasn't his area of focus. But you do see the theme of free will 
more in Marx's writings. And I think the way that Marx got to that was by affirming the Lucretian concept of Kleinemann, the swerve in atomism that allows for contingency and free will that isn't perfectly deterministic. But that was a position that's never been persuasively argued. And I think that the the idealist is um, amply justified in drawing attention to that, that you can try to make room for contingency and for freedom and free will in that paradigm, but there's just no really persuasive way for the materialist to do that. So I think one way to approach the question of materialism and idealism as a Marxist or as a communist is to simply say that the starting axioms that Marx and Engels had, they were never persuasively argued in the first place. We could easily stipulate that metaphysically we live in a universe that is governed by abstract objects or by divine ideas or any number of things. But that doesn't negate the truth in, say, historical materialism. We could still accept that material dialectics are the laws that govern the ascent and descent of modes of production. We don't need to abandon that simply because we're rejecting atomic theory. So that's where I've always taken a stand on this. As a atheist, I was for the longest time of the same uh, disposition as Engels on the question. I believe that all reality was reducible to matter and motion, that it more or less coalesced around dialectical laws, but that there was nothing governing that, that it was simply a, a law of the cosmos that existed on its own terms. It wasn't until much later in life that I found that to be a weak position, just cosmologically and ontologically. It's just not persuasive to me anymore. So I think if the Socratic is considering whether or not he can affirm Marxist principles, I think he can. He just needs to know where to draw the line, ultimately. And I think the line is at that level. It's at the level of cosmology and metaphysics. Everything else we can still accept without coming into contradiction. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, of course, what you said about the truth of materialist dialectics being the driving force of history. We can apply that to Murdoch's text, actually, when she says that human beings are, she says human beings are inherently uh, selfish. You know, that's, uh, that's quite a thing to say because it's ahistorical, right? So it postulates some sort of essence of man. And I actually write an essay that essentialism is not a good approach to understanding the platonic ideals, but identities or essences, or how you want to call them. I think that they participate in the flow, in the hierarchy, but ultimately, when you, when you try to confine them to one thing, then you are actually limiting yourself, because, it's an, because again, epistemology is an ethical act, and it's also a practical act, and it's also a creative act. So you create ripples through your understanding. You are actually participating in, your, in the world and are creating consequences in any way that that's made clear, you know, like when people say that art is dangerous because, Plato says art is dangerous because it's too vice, you know, of course I have my own ideas about art, but, you know, political ramifications aside, it is true that things that we really don't consider practical or connected to the real world, they in fact do participate in a system of causations and 
consequences and also values and all other emotions in the world. That's why I think that dialectical materialism is a good grounding, is a good starting point, it's an excellent starting point because it brings us down enough so we can see how our essentialist presumptions have limited us to unsatisfactory understandings of the ideal. I actually, I don't know if I can remember really if it's in the essay, but I actually draw a distinction between Morphe and uh, Eidos, which both can be translated as forms. And I think that since Plato philosopher uses it interchangeably, Greek philosopher uses it interchangeably, uh, but I think it shouldn't be, because I would say that the Eidos is the ideal itself, while the Morphe, the, the, the shape, the form, is more of a something in between. Like it's not, it's not material, but it's also not quite ideal itself. I think that it's close to what Jung calls the archetypal energy. I think it's a thing that kind of grabs you. It's a, it's a kind of possession. And we are, in the modern world, we are actually, I think this is relevant because we are really possessed by various shapes that convince us that it is the ideal, but it's actually quite a lower, lower stage of our understanding of, of the ideal rather than the ideal itself. I mentioned maybe in our last, in some of our conversations, I mentioned that, uh, like video games, video games give you the shape of an ethical progression, you know, and you essential, essential understanding of heroic journey, let's say, just one example, and you aestheticize it, you know, you're just satisfied with the aesthetic value of it, but there is no actual ethical development of your own character. So it's the morphe that actually possesses you and it prevents you from moving higher in your understanding and parallel to that in your uh, ethical development of, of your character. So where materialism comes in, and even vulgar materialism can be helpful, like Nietzschean return to the body. If you are modern subject of late capitalism and you are completely foreign, estranged, alienated from the goings-on in the world, so you close yourself in the, in the world of entertainment or your own illusions, it's good to return to the body to experience the actual physical sensations of experience from the lowest ground being in pain, not escaping from pain, even, even mental pain, even you know, emotional pain, like people numb themselves. So materialism is, in this practical way, vulgar materialism is a good way to return us to the body so that we can actually know the truth that we have been possessed by the morphe, by the shapes of the false representations of the ideal. Then, of course, in the analytical sphere, which is something else from what I uh, described just now, but when we are thinking about things, you know, things in themselves, the ideals themselves, dialectical materialism is an excellent method to really clear our mind of any illusions we had. Like, that's why I think that Marx's criticism of Hegelianism is excellent. Uh, it's brilliant, because all Hegelianism, you know, as opposed to left Hegelian, right Hegelianism, right, as opposed to the younger left Hegelianism, fetishized the German state. Of course, we talked about fetishization last time, because Hegelianism postulated that in the development of history and of the Geist, the spirit, which is a complicated topic I don't want to get into, but basically that the Prussian state is the ultimate or the penultimate stage in the historical development. 
and therefore it has a sort of uh, sacred value. But then come the materialists and say, no, it's actually set up in a way to protect pretty vulgar uh, class interests of the um, aristocracy and the, the, the new class, the bourgeoisie. So in that way, our understanding of the ideal is actually liberated because the illusions that held us are uh, gone. Like uh, the state wasn't, the, the king is not ordained by God to rule over us. He just wants to maintain his uh, wealth and power. That's, that's a materialist position, but it also frees us from divinizing this king. And it gives us a chance to look beyond the king for the divine. I don't know if you agree with all the things that I'm saying, but how would you say that we can talk about materialism, idealism, not just as existing in separate analytical universes, but that, that they are sort of complementing each other? So before I answer that, one comment I had about Marxism and Hegelianism as you were speaking, I think where Marxism goes awry and dialectical materialism is suffering from the same shortcomings of Hegelianism is in this Promethean ambition of totality, where they believe that they can arrive at a singularity at an absolute truth through this paradigm. I don't think that that's accurate. I think that a more justifiable use of material dialectics would, as opposed to subsume all of totality within the paradigm, is to understand which facets of reality are amenable to that logic. So the Aristotelian in me doesn't want to cast aside essentialism altogether, because I do believe that there are essences in reality. I think that these essences are shaped by history. So I know that that's not essentialism as is sometimes thought of in philosophy. To the extent that it's malleable, it makes you wonder, is it an essence? But I think there's something that persists in spite of it all through this dialectical process of history that is still that could still be regarded as an essence. And in fact, I think part of the program of the communist is to bring mankind back to its Gattungsfacen, which Marx had early on in his career posited about um, our species essence. I don't know that he ever fully abandoned that concept, but I think it's an important concept in political philosophy, and I think that we should continue to affirm it. But returning to your question, I think that the way I understand the distinction, it's twofold. So my Christianity compels me to acknowledge reality as ultimately being reducible to divine ideas in the Thomas sense, where everything is reconciled through the mind of God. Even if we're going to assume abstract ideas, and, or I mean abstract objects in the Platonic sense, we would still have to say that their origin was through the mind of God. He conceived of them. That is why they exist. It's a metaphysical proposition that I'm positing. And I can't really defend it empirically. I can only defend it through rational deductive logic. But I don't think that I'm in any worse of a position as the materialist is. In fact, I think I'm in a better position than the materialist is because the materialist is going to have to ultimately make the argument that all life, every element of existence came of nothing. And that's a hard position to metaphysically affirm because it just violates all of our human intuition 
everything has an origin point. That's why I think the Greco-Roman philosophers were onto something when they, especially Aristotle with the notion of an unmoved mover. Like that's where I think working reductively would lead one to. And from that, I end up arriving at a Christian ontology. So that's the way I do it. In, in Orthodox Christianity, there's this idea that whenever you try to ascend towards God on a ladder, demons fly up and try to put you down. Metaphorically, I think when you start up as an essentialist and try to define the essences of phenomena, you are grabbed by demons, you know, not literally, although maybe literally, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But you are weak to the temptation of illusion. You know. So you constantly need to have this dynamic of approaching nothingness, like approaching the darkness of your own understanding, and from that, realizing where you were wrong and finding a way forward, or, or rather upward, towards, towards the, the light, towards the object itself. What I really dislike about essentialism as a defined position, of course, in some sense, I would also call myself essentialist because I do affirm that platonic ideals are fixed, like, like they are what they are forever. But we can never really understand them as they are forever. So, okay, that's a Kantian position, but, I dif- but what I disagree with Kant is that like, he leaves it at that. You know, we can't know them, we can only study the way they manifest. And I'm saying that ethical development of our character actually conditions the uh, level in which we can epistemologically approach the ideal. And so when you have an abstract object, and you c- actually it doesn't have to be abstract, it can be any object, it can be a material object. So if you're a vulgar materialist and you want to find uh, building blocks of the universe, and you say that like that's a window, you know, this window is a um, building block of my apartment, of this uh, building that I'm in. Uh, but then you, uh, I point to the handle and ask him, well, what's that? And he says it's a handle. What's this bottom part of the handle? And like this part of the handle doesn't have a name. So, you know, material things don't have, they, they only have an identity according to our use. So that's a Heideggerian position that the praxis Marxists uh, adopted. So you cannot ascribe uh, identity to material phenomena. You know, you can only really describe your your use of them. So the, so the window exists so that I look through it or open it to let the air in. Handle exists so I can grab onto something to open it. But the bottom part of the handle does not participate in any of this process, and that's why we don't give it identity. Its identity is contingent on our use. Uh, so what that means is that... Um, we are human beings, you know, the subject itself is sort of a knot that connects the world of phenomena and the world of noumena, the material and the ideal world. Although I was, um, I was warned by one of my professors, who's, who's a brilliant guy, Igor Mikitsin, uh, not to use the word, the word uh, world. The Mundus Intelligibilis is uh, a Latin organization of platonic concepts. So he says the better, the better word that closely captures what Plato meant is space. So we understand uh, the space of uh, material space and the ideal space. And it again draws us back to the um, 
uh, analogy of the ladder, you know, uh, the, the lower space and the upper space. Uh, because it's one thing that doesn't exist in uh, two separate worlds. And also I think that uh, Descartes terribly vulgarizes too with his idealism. I think idealism is not a good position if you try to affirm platonic idealism. And so based on all that, based on all that, materialism actually focuses on us. Identities in the material space depend on us. Uh, but of course, they are contingent on us. But it would be silly and Promethean and in fact uh, Luciferian and incredibly narcissistic to say that we ourselves aren't contingent. Now maybe we can say, like Feuerbach, we can say that, well, we individually aren't contingent, but the humanity, the totality of humanity is actually not contingent. And that's when we come to a thesis on Feuerbach. Uh, what Marx does there is brilliant. He actually shows that humanity in Feuerbach's understanding is just one of among many abstract uh, concepts and that we shouldn't understand humanity as such. Uh, but then he cops up and says, well, actually, what uh, Feuerbach means, like Feuerbach says, God is actually humanity. Marx says, no, Feuerbach's humanity is actually the totality of uh, historical relations. Uh, but then he says, well, that's enough to explain away God. And saying, no, Marx, without meaning to, he actually opened up space to move beyond Feuerbachian criticism of theism. So Marx actually, through debunking the divinity of Feuerbachian humanity, opens up a space to uh, better understanding the divinity of God, or actually just the existence of God. And I've often said that the mistake that materialists make is that they want the heaven to come down by putting science up. They shouldn't approach it as dual aspects of the same thing, or maybe even dialectical way. Like, I don't think that we should try to synthesize materialism, idealism. I think that they should maintain their identities. But also that sort of the way that idealism is true and the way that materialism is true is that actually materialism occupies a small space in the comprehensive idealistic uh, worldview. So, so in a sense, subsumed into the circle of idealism. So the idealist should conceive of materialism as having a function in analysis and having a function in reality, but it's a subordinate role because we're postulating that reality itself comes from phenomena that is immaterial in a sense. And then going back to uh, the German idealist, we could say that Kant was at once too modest in his epistemology by trying to separate the phenomena from the noumena in that rigid way that he did in his critique of pure reason, but that Hegel was far too ambitious in his project. So the platonic alternative is kind of an intermediary between the two. Kant is interesting because while he is too modest in his epistemology, like you said, he sort of exalted reason well beyond what it could justifiably ex uh, be expected to explain. And that's most evident in his ethical system, which is ultimately circular. And I think McIntyre did a brilliant job deconstructing that. I mean, even Nietzsche did, <laughs> did a good job deconstructing that. that. It was, was never meant to stand serious scrutiny. But yeah, that's why uh, the, I think we need to get beyond the uh, German idealist paradigm.
And I think that the way to do that, ironically, is by going back in history and further returning to the Eretaic philosophers and the uh, Socratics, because even on a matter of metaphysics, they still were in advance over what succeeded them in philosophy. But yeah, that's why I found Murdoch's paper so intriguing. I, I guess I found it all the more intriguing just because she was arguing it from what sounded like a atheistic standpoint. And I'm always intrigued because really I think the best metaphysical alternative to conventional theism is Platonism. But I think Platonism itself ultimately reduces to a monotheistic faith of its own. I think that the form of the good is, for all intents and purposes, a god, because everything emanates from that form. All other forms emanate from that form. Everything ultimately comes from the form of the good, which when I was rereading the dialogues, it just coheres nicely with a deist framework. So I think that Sorry, did you say deist or theist? Theist. Since it is, in a sense, monotheistic, it's better conceived of as a, a theistic kind of religion or a monotheistic kind of religion. That doesn't mean that you need to believe in the immortality of the soul or any of those doctrines, but nevertheless, it isn't as irreligious as other atheistic frameworks would be. Another contender is kind of a Pythagorean notion which is somewhat Platonic in its own right, where we're talking about. Of course, Pythagoras actually was one of Plato's greatest influences. Right, yeah. And so we can still, to this day, I think, mathematicians are some of the uh, foremost proponents of the notion of abstract objects, just because of its explanatory value in all manner of uh, research and phenomena. But uh, the kind of reductive materialist paradigm, I don't think really stands up to scrutiny. So I really think that Marxist philosophy would do well to start grappling with these first principles again. Ultimately, is one of the reasons why Marxism has suffered from a deficit of ethical, moral philosophy in its political programs. That's not to say that Marx himself was without a uh, ethical system but he was of two minds of it. At times he relativized it too much, but I think if you do a careful exegetical examination of his writings, especially when it comes to matters of justice and of alienation, you see a trans-historical notion that persists throughout his career, even if he emphasized it more earlier in his career. It's still evident in Capital. It's still evident in his more mature writings. I just feel like uh, it's been lost. And I think it's been lost because Leninism took the reins and Western Marxism wasn't much of an advance after that when it came to moral philosophy. The Praxis school is interesting, the Yugoslavian Marxist, but I do have issues with the sort of existentialist philosophy that underlies part of it. I think that there are issues with Heideggerianism and with other um, existentialist frameworks that Perhaps we can discuss that another time because that's a... a yeah, not, not only that, some, some people have, especially in, in, in Serbia, most of the practice philosophers uh, sided with the Milosevic regime. Uh, really? Is, <laughs> yeah. 
I didn't so realize and some, that. And some people, and some people uh, said it's because of Heideggerian influence. Yeah, it, we, it could course, be. We know where Heidegger <laughs> ended up during World War II. <laughs> could very well be a causal variable. There is a certainly a tendency in Heideggerianism towards the, uh, you know, the characteristically German uh, irrationalism. You know? Yes, yeah. And that's, I think that's um, one of the contributors. What I found important in Heidegger, but also, like, I think Heidegger works more in the frame of, like, I, I think the, the value that Heidegger has is the one that Praxis philosophers found in connected with him to Marxism. So Heidegger on its own is, like, he's interesting, he should be studied, but don't get too uh, seduced by his, like, originality. There's a lot of indebtedness to, first of all, ancient philosophy, and also there's a lot of maybe even unintentional leftovers from German Romanticism. There's even some Lutheran uh, underpinnings that I detect in aspects of Heidegger's work, remnants of a secularized theology there. Well, what, what I still think that is important in Heidegger, Heidegger is um, the way he describes how uh, identities in the material world are contingent on our, well, on our function in the world. You know, mm-hmm. he uses the terms um, ready to hand and in hand or, or whatever the translation is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that he brings to focus the fact that uh, you really can't, understands subject as an independent thing in the world, like he is part of the world. Like I use, uh, analogy I use is when you enter into the ocean, you know, the water rises, no matter how insignificantly, because we are talking about the ocean, but still, you do, do uh, when you enter into some, something to study it, uh, your very presence conditions it. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, what uh, Heidegger brings to focus, and I think that's what uh, the Praxis philosophers interpreted very um, deeply. But returning to your essays, again, I found it interesting because our views, our respective views, coalesce a lot, and then I see points of departure here and there. I've been working on a a paper on political philosophy and Marxism, um, for the last few months, I've just been too distracted to complete it. But um, the role of McIntyre in both of our, in both of our works is pretty pivotal. One gains a lot by um, applying his insights. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, or edited volume Virtue and Politics, but if you've not read that, it's a Marx like a contemporary Marxist engagement with McIntyre's work, and he offers a few papers of his own um, in response to some of what's written. I found it very, it's very valuable. It's um, influenced my own thinking to a considerable extent. But I guess where you and I still depart a little bit is it comes back down to the platonic Aristotelian divide. I find value in postulating the theory of forms. I think that your work and Murdoch's uh, essay that I read it's very thought-provoking and compelling, and I've not necessarily ruled out the possibility of the theory of forms altogether. I think that there's much to be gained through that paradigm, but I still am not um, completely persuaded. Epistemological norms exist, then ethical norms should follow from that in the most basic sense. 
No, right. like I, when I discuss with you and if we disagree, then I shouldn't uh, make up things about your position. Like that's the most vulgar understanding of it. So there are norms in our discussion and there are norms in what we can consider scientifically and rationally valid. Then there are norms also in our functioning in the world. And how do we know what are they? Well, it's the beginning of a journey. I couldn't really, can't really uh, direct it to become a saint in one discussion. Sure, but yeah. You could also even view this through mm -hmm. an Aristotelian framework where you could point out that in the very language that we use, there are embedded value judgments, especially historically speaking, but they still remain with us. When you use language such as, what is a man, for instance? Well, a man, we have a whole litany of ideas of what a man constitutes. And within that are value judgments that people fall closer or further away from. And so it's also just embedded in the very vocabulary we use in many ways. But um, but I think you're right. And this is kind of a, a niche problem because there's, I mean, all things considered, statistically speaking, we're not dealing with many philosophically oriented people in our lives. Um, I think most people have a uh, rudimentary ethical moral sense that they navigate the world with. So I'm not necessarily concerned with trying to persuade them one way or another about something as verified as positing a theory of forms versus anything else. Please visit commonruin.wordpress.com for Marxist analysis from a paleo-communist perspective. And consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash commonruin. All patrons are given access to bonus content and other benefits. Thank you for listening. Mögen die herrschenden Klassen vor einer kommunistischen Revolution zittern. Die Proletarier haben nichts in ihr zu verlieren als ihre Ketten. Sie haben eine Welt zu gewinnen, Proletarier aller Länder, vereinigt euch.